This is Live Wired in Calgary. Hey everyone, welcome to the March edition of Live Wired in Calgary. I'm your host, Darren Krause, editor at LiveWireCalgary.com, and I am coming to you from traditional Treaty 7 territory. What a wonderful start to spring, isn't it? Longer days, more sunshine, warmer temperatures, vaccines being distributed. With all that in mind, we've got a great show for you this month, chock full of super interviews, information, and intrigue. I sat down with Councillor Drew Farrell, who earlier this year decided she would not run again for City Council. We talked about the last 20 years she spent in office, the highs, the lows, and the future. I'll bring you some clips from that interview. Of course, the Guidebook for Great Communities is a real talker these days, and I'll bring you a couple of clips that hopefully clear a few things up for you on that document, plus some thoughts of my own on how this issue is played out. We'll also have some short clips on what the city's doing about social disorder on sea trains, fear over reporting workplace conduct violations at the City of Calgary, and a tree mystery in the city's southwest. Stick around. Drew Farrell is one of Calgary's longest-serving councillors. 2021 marks her 20th year in office, representing Ward 7. Farrell announced earlier this year that she wouldn't be running again. We sat down with the veteran city councillor to talk about those 20 years. We have a couple of clips here from our 30-minute interview, but you can listen to the full interview at LiveWireCalgary.com. We'll find out. Yeah. Um, okay, Drew, so I'm going to start off with the toughest question. Uh, can you tell me what led to your decision to not run in the upcoming municipal election? I decided during the last election that this would be my last term. Mm-hmm. So it's been 20 years and it's, it's, uh, it's time for me. I feel content with what I've accomplished. The work is never done, but I, it, it's time to let someone else take the reins. Was there any part of you, though, that was thinking, okay, I've got to, still got the fire, let's just do one more term? No, no, not this term. I had always decided I would, um, I would get as much done in my final term as possible. I've, I always work hard, but I feel like I've worked the hardest this term and accomplished a lot of what I set out to do. The work is never done. So you can hang on with your fingernails or make a decision to, to turn, it o- turn over the keys, I guess. And, and that's, um, that's what I've felt through this whole term. So it wasn't a last-minute decision. It was thoughtful. And um, I, I, it's the right decision for me. It'll always be hard. <laughs> I'm having a little bit of separation anxiety because I... I love the work. I love the people. I, I love working with city administration, and I never have a shortage of, of new ideas. And certainly the community 
residents provide great inspiration, but it, it, it's time for me. Over a 20-year career, obviously one has their hands in a lot of different things, but are there one or two, and I know it's be tough to narrow it down, but are there one or two things that really stand out as, as monumental achievements for your career? Oh, it's so hard. I, I have a list of what I've accomplished. It's a long list, and I'm, I'm proud of what I've been able to accomplish over 20 years. I would hope over 20 years you, you, a politician would have a long list of accomplishments. It's, it's so hard to pin it down. At East Village, just the, the battle, the struggle it was to, to change the thinking about this potential community, it was incredibly rewarding. It's easy to forget how difficult it was. And so from time to time when I'm walking through you know, Riverwalk and, and Eau Claire and East Village, I, I reflect on what it was like. And it, it's, um, it was hard, but boy, was it rewarding. Of course, the Peace Bridge will, will always be the emblem of that struggle. I like to joke that it's, you know, it, it represents the lashes on my back <laughs> because <laughs> that was so tough. But I do it again. I, I would, I would do it again, despite how difficult it was. It was it was worth it. It's now it's now representative of Calgary in in photographs around the globe. Uh, I think that the most important work that I've done is every decision I made was through a lens of does this make Calgary better for the next generation? That has always been the lens that I look through. It's very difficult as a politician to make long-term decisions because sometimes the benefits are not evident immediately. And so I always thought long-term and I thought for the next generation. And that is represented in my work with the environment, with smart growth, with climate change, um, with with triple bottom line, social and physical and, and environmental work. And I'm, I, th- I think I'm most proud of just the decision-making process because it helped make those decisions clear to me. It, it, you know, it, you're being buffeted in a million different directions when you're a decision-maker. I, I, I like to think back of one of the first things that I did. I was able to get some funding for a pedestrian overpass from Brentwood to, to North Hill Park over John Laurie Boulevard. And I thought, oh, I, I, I think we should have a naming contest. So we went to the neighboring school and, and held a contest. And, and the winning name was Whispering Grasses Walkway. It was a little girl who, who had named it. And, and I thought, what a lovely name that was. And so that was the winning name. And I got angry emails from parents who thought I chose the wrong name. And I realized at that point, you can't, it doesn't matter how small the decision is, you can't please everyone. So having a, having a, a lodestone, a, a, you know, a, a sense of purpose helped make that more clear. So, I mean, that was actually a really good segue into the next question here, Drew. What didn't you like about the job? 
know, there. I think the job has changed since I first got elected. I mean, when I when I ran in two thousand and one, email was pretty new, believe it or not. And so, you know, we would get written letters, and people would put thought into them. And then when the advent of email came in, it became like hyper-democracy. You were expected to, to answer something immediately. I, I, and then, of course, social media took over an email and it almost seems outdated. It, it's the speed of which you're expected to form an opinion. And I, I like to have all the information necessary in order to make an informed opinion. And we're seeing that less and less. We're seeing people running for politics who are fully formed. They um, don't uh, have room to know what they don't know. And 20 years in, I'm still learning. This job is fascinating. There's so much complexity around how a city works that it's, you know, it's a perpetual learning experience. But I, I think we have fewer people recognizing that as a responsibility and everyone's an expert now. And maybe that's just indicative of our society as a whole, that opinions are as important as fact. But, but I, I, think that, I think that's weakening politics in general. It's weakening society in general, not just city council. As far as, as you know, parts of the job that I don't like, I don't like the tribalism that's, that's starting to permeate into the political arena, I think that's weakening our society. It used to be where you could agree or disagree. There weren't party lines that were so so firmly drawn. And then if you made a decision that somebody didn't like or they didn't support something that you wanted, you just go for lunch. You shake it off and go for lunch. And we don't see that as much anymore. We need that back. We need people who are willing to look at their purpose, make the city better. You may disagree on what those individual decisions are, but that's your purpose, and um, that, that's not as strong. It's been 20 years. Looking back, is Calgary better now than it was when you were first elected? Oh, I would say yes. It, it's more bold. It's more progressive. It's more inventive and creative, more curious, which is one of my favorite words. I think we need to all be curious. I mean, it took 10 years to get curbside recycling. That was the first notice of motion that I brought forward when I got elected was for a recycling composting program. And it took a good 10 years to get it through, but we got it through and, and there's no turning back. It's better in a whole host of ways. And all right, Drew, final question. Um, you've got all of your ward and thousands of Calgarians wondering, what's next? What's next? I don't know what's next. I'm going to take a break. We'll see. We'll see what lands my way. I um, I might enjoy retirement. It might drive my husband crazy, <laughs> me crazy. So I I think I'm I'm open, but I I'm I think I'll take a much needed rest. This week, Councillor Jeff Davison asked a question in council regarding the prevalence of social disorder on Calgary Transit. 
Ridership has been low, and with many public spaces not open, there isn't as much activity on the lines. That's put social disorder in full view on Calgary Transit. And here's how they're handling it. Uh, Since we last reported on February 8th, we continue to experience social disorder issues on the C-Train system. The combination of closure of other public spaces and the drop in ridership have contributed to the issue. In response, Calgary Transit has developed a three-phase response program to elevate our presence on the system. Phase one began last Thursday, where Calgary Transit doubled the peace officer patrolling the system through overtime and strategic scheduling. This intense deployment will have a duration of five to 10 days to provide an immediate response. This will be accompanied by a communications campaign educating customers on security and reporting systems through conventional media channels, Twitter, web, and public address. Beginning on March 22nd, we're developing a partnership with Calgary Community Standards and Corporate Security in consultation with the police service to augment Calgary Transit's peace officer team. This will be again accompanied by an elevated communications campaign with posters and media at stations and on vehicles. Following phase two in May, phase three will begin with the hiring of contracted security service providers to provide increased visibility and incident reporting, enabling peace officers to focus on other areas. Also this week, the city's audit committee heard that only 61% of city employees believe they can report a workplace code of conduct violation to their bosses without fear of retribution from a supervisor. That was from a 2019 corporate employee survey. Here's what Audit Committee Citizen Member Michael Lambert had to say about it. Uh, thanks to the chair, um, and thanks for that presentation. You know, it's interesting when I, I hear about the culture, and I and I actually applaud the four C's. When I, I now use the four C's and other organizations I'm involved with, um, just as a shelter for leadership and and for membership of the organization. And um, everybody I've, I've experienced at the city uh, I've, I've seen a passion for the city and a passion for the four C's. But I have to say I'm appalled. I am appalled at that number of how many individuals uh, fear, and I'm, gonna, I'm saying that word intentionally, retribution from, um, from their superiors. My, my guess is, I'm, I'm saying this intentionally, um, my guess is it was a number like that for uh, the Governor General's office. And I think we need to take more action. I don't think training is enough. I think, um, you know, I think uh, that um, council should be appalled. I think uh, the senior administrators should be appalled. And that um, that we're now accepting that there's a not 100% uh, taking um, what's required as soon as possible. Uh, We should should be outraged. The city did say they would be doing a deeper dive into what drove that number. Finally, Livewire Calgary reader Ashley Henriksen let us know about a swath of trees along a southwest Calgary pathway that had been illegally cut down. Calgary bylaw is investigating. We talked to Calgary's urban forestry lead, Julie Guimont, about the incident. 
how often do you see something like this where where I, I'm I'm assuming I mean it could be some random person from out of town who's come in with some pretty strong hedge clippers or whatever coming in and, and doing this, but I'm assuming that it's a citizen. How often would you see something like this happen in the city? That's a good question. I don't know if I have a total number. Right. We it is not. I'd say it's more common for us in forestry at least to manage, you know, a tree that's been damaged because a vehicle has crashed into okay. it or that's removed as a result of development and and that we have, we work with the developers on that compensation, then we probably see these type of actions. And it's more common for us to see sort of pruned branches than it would be cut down to that level. I don't know. I don't have specific statistics on it, and I definitely don't have statistics on what it looks like in that more natural area riparian Yeah, for sure. Zone. Okay, so mm-hmm. the final question I have for you um, is going to be – it's a little bit speculative, but, I mean, we're talking about trees that are that are on the – looks like the roadside, so it means that the houses, the front of the houses would be facing, or the front of any houses in the area, or, or any residences, maybe their bit businesses, would be facing that river. Is this a case of somebody wanting a little bit better river view? Again, I don't, I, you alluded to it, I can't speculate on that, but um, there's a variety of reasons why people may want to do work on a tree. I know our clearance on trees along pathways is sometimes because they're, they're in, we have clearance expectations for pedestrians along a pathway. We don't prune for visual clearance. Well, I'm hearing an enormous amount of misinformation. Who knew Calgarians would finally be interested in planning? It can be dull, filled with lingo and acronyms, even bureaucrats mix sometimes. And for the vast majority of Calgarians, it's something that happens without them even knowing. But the guidebook for great communities has piqued interest in city planning. The debate is ongoing Monday at the combined meeting of council, so we can't tell you exactly how this turns out. But we can still inform. As Mayor Nenshi said, there's misinformation out there. Lots of it. I wanted to ask the city some of the pressing questions Calgarians had on the document. I talked last week with Lisa Kahn from the guidebook team, and I'll play a few clips for you before tying things up at the end. So I really want to get to the probably the biggest question that people have. I could ask you straight up if this guidebook for great communities eliminates the single family home. And I'm assuming that the answer is just a straight up no, not at all. Right. So easiest answer. <laughs> yeah, right. Now, what I want to ask, though, is lowest intention, uh, lowest intensity, low density residential forms should be supported where the parcel meets two or more of the following criteria: is laneless, is of a prohibitive parcel shape or size, located on a no-through dead end or cul-de-sac street, contains or abuts an escarpment or is not located within 600 meters of a transit stop. Uh, that really seems like like that's a pretty specific criteria. Can you tell me how much of these areas, whether it's zone A or zone B, would be covered if 
those rules were in effect? Yeah, it, it really depends on each community, right? So some communities have more parcels that meet those criteria than others. It depends a lot on, you know, the era of the community. So a lot of times our historical communities have lanes where more of our, like, um, 1950s communities don't always have lanes. So it really depends on the community you're looking at. I know in North Hill, it's probably one of our lowest areas that would meet those criteria. But even in North Hill, we still found quite a few chunks of areas that, that would meet those criteria. What the criteria really do, though, is it sets out the expectation for how we as administration review those applications. So a lot of the times somebody comes in and applies for a row house and there's a common misconception that we just approve it, that we're just going to approve every row house that comes in for an application. And that's not the case. And we wanted to put that in the guidebook so that people knew exactly what we were looking at when making that decision. And a lot of the times row houses are generally appropriate, like our NDP says, in most of our low density areas. But there are certain site characteristics that are really at the local site level that help us in determining if that individual application has the merit to be approved or not. And so we wanted to put that criteria out there for folks to understand when it's going to be approved from administration's point of view or when it's more likely to be refused. Do you think that that's an issue? I I, I know that it's asking for more of your opinion because a a lot of people might see that as, um, well, you can't have a single family or a, a single detached residence in these locations if you're within 600 meters of a transit stop or, oh. or if you have a prohibitive parcel shape or size or, or, you know, like, like yeah. they might think that, oh, well, you know, the city's put in this criteria to essentially eliminate single family detached in these areas. Yeah, that's a great point, Darren. Thank you for bringing that up. I should have said that earlier. So single detached are allowed in all of those. So it's, it, it kind of builds on one another. So the lowest one is single detached, moderate is single detached and semi detached, highest is single semi row house. So singles are going to be replaced in areas within 600 meters of a transit stop as well as we would approve a row house there as well, right? Depending on the merits, of course, of that site. Right. But it's not that we're saying you can only build a row house. We're saying this is where we're most likely to give an approval to a row house. Not that you can't build a single. We recognize that 56% of our um, housing stock in Calgary at a low density scale is, is single detached dwellings. And that will continue. That's a trend that we've seen remain consistent across the past 10 years. And so single detached houses will continue to be built and we expect that 56% to stay about 56%. We don't expect to see that number drop off. Maybe I can ask this a different way, because I I totally understand what you're saying, Lisa. From a resident's perspective, though, or um, perhaps they may see this as if there is going to be any development in their community, it's going to have to be upsized because, like I said, I mean, where where are we not 600 meters from a transit stop in Calgary or or as you've mentioned, you know, there are some communities that are completely laneless. So now if you if you don't meet at least two of these criteria, I, I mean, and I know that this is a harsh way to put it, but but the single detached residence is being phased out or, or do I have that completely wrong? I would say no. Like, I, it is definitely not being phased out. We know that redevelopment is going to happen as singles 
to singles. Um, what we're trying to do is to set clear expectations of where we would approve more intensity than just a single. And so it's not like if you're in 600 meters of a stop, we're only going to, we're going to say you have to build a row house. We're not. You can absolutely build that single detached dwelling in that same location. We're just trying to be consistent and show those expectations of where we might um, approve something like a row house. And so, and that has been a policy for the past 10 years. Right. So those are, those, that's criteria that we've looked at over all of our applications since, since the MDP has been in effect. And clearly communities are not all of a sudden, you know, wiping out single detached dwellings. I'll use Renfrew as a great example. So mm-hmm. Renfrew is actually designated in our land use bylaw as RC2, and that allows for semi-detached dwellings. And it's been designated that since before 1980. But yet Renfrew still has a ton of single detached dwellings. In fact, the majority of its low density is single detached, despite the fact that they can build more. We're still seeing teardowns of houses and replacing with single detached houses. So we're not phasing out the single detached home. We're just adding in that variety and choice where appropriate. This is probably going to be the final question, unless, of course, mm-hmm. it spurs a couple more. The MDP prescribes, I believe, a 50-50 split by yeah. 2050, I think? 2069. Oh, 2069. 2069. Maybe I just had the 50s in my head. <laughs> um, now, of course, um, as we had established, the MDP lays the groundwork for the guidebook, which then lays the groundwork for the LAPs, or, or as you would put it, it provides the language. Is it fair to say, Lisa, that this is a document that does move us closer towards that 50-50 split of urban density or urban population density um, versus suburban population density? Not on its own. It has to be combined with a local area plan to do that, right? Because the guidebook doesn't actually put anything on the ground, but it's the tool to get us to that policy, to help us develop those local area plans that get us to that 50-50. So we really have to think of the guidebook and local area plans as working together to get to that goal. So then, I guess, to clarify further, for the average person, the the LAP is really the document that that spells out how we're going to get to that 50-50, um, and that's where uh, arguably uh, the greatest impact on an area could be. Absolutely. The guidebook wouldn't impact an area until the local area plan is adopted by council. So the local area plan is really that tool to say how growth and evolution is going to occur at that local level. Again, the guidebook just gives that language, but it doesn't apply anything on the ground. The issue here is that once people are told, erroneously, that this is a blanket rezoning of Calgary's established communities or that their single-family homes are in jeopardy, they can't shake it. It's what they've worked hard for. It's what they take pride in. And for many people, they're so deeply rooted in the neighborhood, they can't imagine it being different. This idea that their neighborhood is going to be drastically changed fans those fears. The reality is that change is already taking place. At any time, in any one of these neighborhoods, I can walk in with a land use change application, a plan, and then tear down a house and build something different. Communities have relatively little say. What the guidebook does is offer communities and residents a bit more control over what appears where, 
as the neighborhood evolves. The guidebook does nothing on the ground. Nothing. What it does is it gives residents the option to put certain types of development in certain places. That offers them a level of certainty that someday a row house or an eightplex or a condo tower isn't going to be built next to them. I think where the city of Calgary has dropped the ball is in illustrating the connection between the two plans, the guidebook and the local area plan, and to show that the local area plan is where the magic happens, not the guidebook. That mistake has led to the rise of a misinformation campaign that threatens what many Calgarians hold dear. Next month, I'll be able to update you on the outcome or... You can find the latest news and my full interview with Lisa Kahn at LiveWireCalgary.com. Well, that's it. Another fun-filled month of Calgary community news right here on CJSW. Thanks to Lisa Kahn, Julie Guimont, and Drew Farrell for chatting this week. And thanks to you for tuning in once again. We'll catch you on the fourth Monday in April. So long. <music>